both sides seem to be bad or at least dirty here. So it isn't a political issue. And that's why I'm so glad we're talking about it today because it has nothing to do with politics. Cross-corroboration actually increases the reliability of the complaints rather than decreases it. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Higgs, former state and federal prosecutor. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Francie. And good morning, bad morning, I would say. And hmm, this is going to be an episode, a very intense and frustrating episode of Worst Case Scenario. It totally is, Jim. And can I just say, it's really great to have you back in studio. I've had to have sub-ins for you a couple of times over the last few I weeks. I know, but my schedule has been a little bit crazy. I've been out of town a lot. Uh was actually up in the mountains right near where the earthquakes happened uh, over the 4th of July holiday. Quite shaky events, but uh, as far as I know, nobody around there was hurt, which is great. Serious earthquakes, but not in city centers. So Yes, thank um, goodness for that. But it's great to be back together. Yes. And this worst case scenario, I guess we could sum it up in two words, Jeffrey Epstein. And my understanding is back in 2002 to 2005, there was some stuff that went on and then there was a deal made. And now it's 2019 and I'd be, I don't know, bold enough to say no deal. So let's talk about Jeffrey Epstein. Tell me who he is. Yeah, so Jeffrey Epstein, it's such a a horrific and interesting and frustrating and enraging case. Not that you have any opinions on it. (laughs) Jim, do I ever lack opinions? (laughs) No, so Jeffrey Epstein was arguably a billionaire. There's apparently some debate about that. But regardless, a very wealthy man with lots of rich and powerful friends who at this point count two current and former presidents, that is Presidents Trump and Clinton. So let's go back in time. Hmm. Epstein made his money apparently at Bear Stearns before Bear Stearns failed way back in the day as some sort of a traitor. I remember Bear Stearns very well, and I actually did some investigations against them. Back in the day when I was working on C1, 
which was the white collar crime squad in Manhattan at the FBI. Right in the epicenter of financial issues, yes. crimes, business, all being done there. So is this during the time of blood money and all that? It is. And what's interesting about this, it comes into play a little bit later, but what's interesting is that Epstein was a major investor at Bear Stearns in addition to being a trader there at some point. And uh, when Bear Stearns went under and there were indictments issued about that uh, failure, he was listed as a victim. In fact, I want to say, I could be wrong about this, but I want to say he was victim number one. Really? Yes. Listed in indictments um, anonymously. But this case has less to do with finance and a lot more to do with being a predator. I know we we don't always agree on the use of that term, but no, I think we don't. But I think here we can certainly define him as that. And let me explain why. Okay, so back in two thousand two to two thousand five, Epstein, then very wealthy man, uh, had a home on a private island that he owned in the U.S. Virgin Islands a home in West Palm Beach, uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, mm -hmm. and a absolutely massive mansion. I think they're saying maybe the biggest in New York at value at $77 million. Where is this mansion? I mean, I know of Gracie Mansion, where the mayor no, lives. It's but... apparently like a former school, I read. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's a wow. huge mansion that the guy lived in. So he had this, and then he also had some ranch out in the West. He has multiple homes, a, a private jet, and he's constantly connecting with the rich and powerful. Okay, so just for our listeners who may not recall right at this moment, who was president at this time? Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, of course, it was Bill Clinton. And then uh, in 2000, George W. Bush was elected president. So the conduct here sort of spans the Clinton-Bush years in the White House. And that's George W., the son. That's correct, than, Bush 43. Right. Okay. That's right. All right, that's the setting. So the post setting. Post-9-11 kind of stuff. Post, Very, very post-9-11, just right after 9-11. So sometime in 2001 or 2002, this conduct began. It wasn't uncovered until a few years later, so let's talk about that. In Florida in the early 2000s, a young woman came forward to local law enforcement and claimed that Jeffrey Epstein had sexually abused her. So they began an investigation. Mm -hmm. They declined to bring charges. Right. I remember this. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a lot of very broad allegations made that a bunch of other people were involved. That's right. This child uh, made allegations that she was recruited into what, you know, probably sounded then at least a little bit like an outlandish scheme, like it couldn't even be true. Like, who does this stuff where you're recruiting young women and girls underage to go to these massive parties at billionaires' homes and effectively service Men, that is, give them massages, sexual favors, for which these young women and girls were paid. They were transported by private jet all over the world to the private island, to the New York Manhattan mansion, and of course, the West Palm Beach house. And that was the allegation made by one young woman, and that was investigated by local law enforcement. And so it sounds a little fantastic. Why did they decline prosecution? Do you know? That's a big mystery. 
the local uh, police chief sent it over to the prosecutors and fully expected it to be prosecuted. Everyone knew they were dealing with a wealthy, powerful man. And at that time, he was, Epstein was heavily involved in the Clinton Foundation and was a prominent FOB, friend of Bill. He'd had lots of photographs taken with Clinton and with then private citizen Donald Trump and lots of other rich and powerful people. So the speculation was when the DA refused charges that it was because of his wealth. You and I have talked about that many times, Jim, about there being a two-tiered justice system. Well, I mean, when you can afford a massive law firm to stand beside you or run interference for you, then you can actually get better deals. And it forces the prosecution to basically make concessions that they wouldn't otherwise make. So let's talk about this. I remember back in the day when Alan Dershowitz came on the news programs and made a very direct statement. He was one of the ones that this young lady made allegations against. Absolutely right. And he was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer at the time. Yes. So I remember Dershowitz making a very direct and unequivocal statement. I do not know this woman. I've never met this woman. And I've never been at the same place at the same time as this woman. And I remember looking at that. I remember people asking and this really creating a lot of discussion about whether or not this is just another false allegation or is this a true allegation and somebody's trying to get ahead of it. And I remember saying, by seeing his statement and listening to it and analyzing it from a behavioral perspective and a linguistic perspective, that it was a very direct and unequivocal denial. It wasn't a, I wouldn't do that kind of thing, just ask my friends kind of thing. It was a really direct and unequivocal denial. It also made statements of fact that could be disproven if not true. So if there was any interactions between this woman and Dershowitz, then there may have been proof out there. And so I would have expected Dershowitz, being the very experienced defense attorney that he is, to be very careful about what he says. So it kind of rang true to me. And it brought me back to this whole scenario, brought me back to the time when I believe it was in the late 80s when issues started arising about Covenant House. And there was a young man who came forward. I think he was 20, 21 years old. Might have been a little younger. I, I don't remember. And he made claims to us at the FBI NYPD Joint Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force, that Father Bruce Ritter, the founder, the esteemed founder of Covenant House, who spread that charity organization across the country and even around the world to help kids who were homeless. And I know many times we brought kids there who were on the streets, who were being sexually victimized, who had no other alternatives. And this young man said, that Father Ritter allowed him to come up to his floor of the building, and it was down by Times Square at the time before they branched out and had another building as well. And he said that he would engage in sexual acts with this young man who was supposed to be under the shelter of Covenant House. And sounded fantastic because this guy, you know, was saying things that just 
didn't seem true about a man who had who had built an amazing reputation for helping kids. But because he made these allegations and they were very specific, we started investigating and we worked with a lawyer there who was very helpful, incredibly justice oriented and very cooperative with our investigation. But then this young man did something. He went down to, I think, let's say North Carolina and went to another FBI office there and made allegations that he was sexually victimized in North Carolina. Hmm. (sighs) And then it became more and more apparent that he was basically talking to whoever was there and he'd say whatever he wanted to say to them. And then those statements were inconsistent. And anyway, in the end, because of his inconsistency and the fact that he was traveling to different offices and saying different things, we ended up not having any real case in that case. However, the investigation did pull on a few threads and things did unravel for Father Bruce Ritter. And eventually he was forced to resign. And I do believe he was engaging in sexual acts. We didn't hear of any underage boys that he was having sex with, but young men who were in his care, who were supposed to be protected by him, who were being sexually victimized by him. Well, we've talked about power position predators, if you will. Absolutely. And so that ended up really hurting the organization, but disgracing Father Ritter. However, I don't know if he was ever convicted, so I can't say that he actually committed a crime. What I'm saying is uh, he may have committed some serious moral violations, and that is something that now is historical. But this reminds me a lot of that case, because as you said, the case didn't get prosecuted. And I wonder if it was the fact that this young woman, whether deliberately or not deliberately, was including big name people in order to bolster her case. But in fact, it undermines her case when it's outrageous or just not verifiable. Well, the prosecutor, the state prosecutor, apparently at the time, felt that this young woman was not credible. And that's where you and I, Jim, having worked in this area, know that corroboration is so critical in these investigations when you have an allegation that is completely uncorroborated or unaccompanied by forensic evidence of any kind. There's never going to be physical evidence because the allegations are made long after there's any potential physical evidence left in any sort of rape or sexual assault. There's no DNA. There's no photographs, probably, at least not that anyone knows about. And so the local DA declined to prosecute. Well, the police chief was so incensed that he forwarded the case to the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Florida in the hopes that they would pick it up because there were lots of elements that had interstate commerce giving federal jurisdiction. Because you're talking about a crime that is potentially spanning states and even into territories of the United States, so crossing international lines. Can I tell you guys about how much I love my cats? I know what you're thinking. I'm a crazy cat lady. 
but I admit it completely. I adore both my cats, Bella and Mia. They are the sweetest companions. They greet me when I come home. When I've been gone for a while, they cry when I pick them up to pet them. I would do absolutely anything for them. They're my family. Of course, there's one negative about cats, right? Especially indoor cats. And that's dealing with the cat litter. It's messy. It's smelly. It's heavy. And it's really barbaric. So I switched to pretty litter. It's Kitty Litter 2.0, and it's shipped right to my door in a small, lightweight bag that lasts me the entire month. And Pretty Litter has next-level odor protection. It's my favorite part of it. The best part, though, is it monitors your cat's health. It changes colors to detect underlying illnesses before urgent medical care is needed, saving money, stress, and maybe even your cat's life. Do what I did and make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code BESTCASE for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code BESTCASE for 20% off. prettylitter.com, promo code BESTCASE. Does it seem like packing your toiletries somehow always involves that delicate game of stacking and space hacking? And don't even get me started on lotion exploding all over your toiletry bag. That's why Quip electric toothbrushes work just as well at home as they do on the go. The compact and wireless design tucks easily in the corner of your carry-on or your back pocket if you're just spending the night. Plus, that travel-ready cover protects your brush from sandy swimsuits and luggage slip-ups. The multi-use cover works as a stand. It mounts to mirrors. It slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip on the go. So it declutters your sink or cabinet or the hotel bathroom where you're traveling to. And it makes traveling with an electric toothbrush easier. There are no wires or clunky chargers, and it runs for three months on a single charge. My favorite thing is the two minutes in 30-second intervals where the vibrations signal you to change where in your mouth you're cleaning. That's why I love Quip, and that's why I'm taking it every time I pack my suitcase and head back to Atlanta. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com bestcase right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com bestcase. So the case now goes to the FBI to investigate. And, they, and it's now approximately 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. And they uncover multiple young women some of whom were minors at the time, some of whom were just young women, who tell a remarkably similar story to this young woman. Massive parties, recruitment both by adults in Epstein's orbit, other women even, which I just, uh, I'm so appalled by, but is not at all uh, new or shocking, but I'm appalled by it. And even prior victims who Mm. became recruiters for Epstein. They're recruiting young women in their orbit and young girls who were otherwise vulnerable. You know how this works. It's young women who have been thrown away by their families or are disadvantaged in some way or need attention or who are already uh, suffering from abuse at home. And most of them are actually afraid of speaking out because they're kind of caught in this web of violence and drugs and manipulation and abuse, and they don't have anywhere to turn. They're sort of the unwanted, they're sort of the unseen, and they're the people that don't feel that the system will help them in any way. And it also sounds like what we refer to as the grooming pipeline, and that is that offenders knowing that they can't 
couple for life with a child because a child will always age out. If they're sexually attracted to children, they typically have a number of kids who are in this pipeline who they are at different stages of grooming with. And when one ages out, they've got another one who comes in. And basically, it gives them a continuous supply of victims to victimize. And it sounds like, and it's very common for this to happen, that when children are kind of aging out or becoming young adults, that they may also help these offenders bring in other people. Because as terrible as it is that they're getting victimized, they're getting victimized anyway. And sometimes these victims see it as, well, there's also benefits to this. We're actually getting food. We're actually getting to hang out and do crazy things and be where you know everybody would want to be because there's these wild parties and there's all these important people around and they're getting paid for it and they're getting their needs met and they're basically trading off for the victimization and they know it and it becomes sort of a commercial enterprise. But the fact is, if they're under the age of 18, and they're children under the law, and that means that they are being sexually victimized by whoever engages them, even if they are holding themselves out as prostitutes, even if they are doing this willingly, the law protects them from adults who would take advantage of them. Well, it does, Jim. And that looks like that's exactly what was happening here, is you had multiple adults, both men and women, uh, engaging in this, what became a commercial sex trafficking scheme. There are allegations against presidents. There are allegations against members of the UK royal family, allegations against prominent, wealthy businessmen and many women who worked with Epstein on various business endeavors are also alleged to have been aiding him in recruiting young women, scheduling these young women, putting them on planes and coordinating this lifestyle that looked like it was a lifestyle of sex abuse of young women and girls. Right. And I think we have to be careful, obviously, about all these allegations because unfortunately, as you and I know, because we've worked in this field for many decades, actually, we understand that sometimes people believe that they're bolstering their complaints by including a number of very high profile people. And many times that actually backfires and undermines their claims. It could be that these people, and as you said, two presidents have been friends with Epstein and apparently have been seen in his company and so forth, and maybe have been to his island and his mansion and so forth, could very well be that they've been at parties, they've been at events and so forth together. But does that mean that they were involved in sexually victimizing children? Or does that mean that they're involved in soliciting prostitution or in sex trafficking? But the fact that they're associated with a guy like this, wow. That's yeah. pretty bad just on its face. It is. Absolutely is. And I, I you know, I, I wrote a column um, this week for thehill.com where I talk about the case and some of the ramifications of it. To me, this has nothing to do with partisan politics. Oh, it may be political in the sense that you've got political figures. Uh, but to They're me- They're on both sides it, of the fence, well, though. Well, of course. And it's utterly irrelevant. I don't care if they were all on one side of the fence. 
people are trying to make hay out of accusing one side or the other about being worse. And of course, both sides seem to be bad or at least dirty here. So it isn't a political issue. And that's why I'm so glad we're talking about it today, because it has nothing to do with politics. And I want to make that very clear. So you had the FBI do what looks to have been a very thorough investigation. And they did what you and I know is key when it's a he said, she said case. They got corroboration. They got manifest, flight manifest from these flights. They got pilot logs. They have documentary evidence. They did search warrants. Are you talking about back in 2002 to 2005? Oh, yes, I am. Oh, it was a very thorough investigation. And were they able to corroborate that these young ladies or young or girls were actually on these flights? Absolutely, yes. They absolutely were. There was rock-solid proof that these underage girls were being transported around the country and to the Virgin Islands on Epstein's jet. There was absolute proof. There were calendar entries about parties that these young women attended. any legitimate, innocent reason for this? Well, I suppose they could have been there and not been sexually abused. I mean, for the actual sexual abuse... We and the FBI had to rely upon the accounts of these young women and girls. But can I just say, there were multiple accounts that all corroborated each other and were internally and externally consistent with all of the evidence. Well, that sounds like cross-corroboration. And cross-corroboration actually increases the reliability of the complaints rather than decreases it. So I'm really interested in finding out why the hell this wasn't prosecuted back then. Yeah, so it's interesting, Jim, because what happened after that, and I just want to also say I've been collaborating since April of 2018 with the Miami Herald and with Julie Brown on uh, her reporting on this, which has been absolutely incredible. Um, I've been helping her just a little bit on background. Obviously, she's she's done a tremendous amount of work corroborating her own story before the expose was published last fall. And so I've read all the documents in this case. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very familiar with all of these allegations and the great work by the FBI and the local law enforcement in proving this case into what is my mind made it rock solid sex trafficking case that was federal and should have been prosecuted vigorously. So it goes to the U.S. Attorney's this Office. This is in what year that it goes to the U.S. Attorney's um, Office? 2006, I believe. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. 2006. I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta. You were in the Behavioral Analysis Unit at the yes. FBI. I was unaware that this was happening because, of course, I was just my own. I was just an assistant U.S. attorney. I'm just prosecuting my own cases. I know. We've talked about the fact that you were an assistant while Stop. I was a supervisory special agent. Well, it was we only later I was your supervisor. But anyway, <laughs> so this is happening in about 2006. And so they get the case at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Reports are they draft a 50-page indictment. And are prepared to go to grand jury. The U.S. Attorney's Office. Yes. So they know 50 pages worth of details enough to substantially charge him with crimes that are definitely going to put him away the rest of his life. You know, I like to call that a pine box sentence. He was definitely looking at a pine box sentence. And then stop. They're talking to victims. They're sending out what we would call victim notification letters, telling the victims that the case is still under investigation. They'll be informed, as is their right under the Victims' Rights Act, of any activity on the case. And what's happening in the background is that the assistant U.S. attorney and the U.S. attorney appointed by President Bush, Alex Acosta. Alex Acosta. I've heard that name recently. That's because he is currently President Donald Trump's Secretary of Labor. So 
Those two, the assistant U.S. attorney and the U.S. attorney, and I'm sure a few others at least inside that office, start a negotiation with Epstein's dream team of lawyers that includes Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr. Really? Yes. And those lawyers are very aggressive and threatening and talking about filing all kinds of motions and making this a huge paper case, attacking the victim's credibility, objecting to things like sending out victim notification letters which no defense attorney ever objects to. It's a form letter informing the victim about a court appearance. Right. There's nothing of substance in it, but they objected even down to that granular level. So I'm certain that it was clear to that U.S. attorney's office that this was going to be a very hard fought case. But this is what federal prosecutors do every day in every one of the 93 districts in this country is they take on Dream team defense attorneys and the federal prosecutors have their own dream team of lawyers who, many of whom I didn't, but many of whom have very impressive legal credentials from highfalutin law schools all over this country. And they've started at white shoe law firms and they're really smarty smart so they can handle the dream team of defense attorneys. But for some reason that is absolutely inexplicable to me, they folded like a cheap suit. And behind the scenes, they negotiated what I find to be the most monumentally stupid non-prosecution agreement I've ever heard of. Well, I don't even know what's in it yet, but I already agree with you. It sounds like something went on here. I mean, it's either some catastrophic failure of the evidence or catastrophic failure of the system, the justice system, based on the fact that this guy Epstein had incredibly powerful lawyers. And I have to ask you, Alex Acosta was the U.S. attorney, right? That's right, yes. Criminal lawyer. Yes. Federal criminal lawyer. Yes. And what department does he... Does he now head up? Department of Labor. Department of Labor. And what experience does he have with Department of Labor? I have no idea. I mean, what could he possibly? I don't How know. do you become the secretary of the Department of Labor when you've been a criminal attorney? I have no clue. Although, in fairness, the U.S. attorney's offices around the country also handle civil matters on a variety of topics. They are the nation's first line of defense when they're being sued on all kinds of civil matters, including okay. matters of labor. So labor relations, violation of labor laws. And These, is that what he did for the Department of Justice before he became this, the U.S. attorney? Well, I don't know. I don't know what he, I have no idea what his background is, but I mean, he certainly oversaw the office. Yeah, they had both criminal and office, civil lawyers. I know. All right. I overseeing know. the office does not give somebody no. experience no. or credibility in that area. No. Does he have a PhD? I don't know. In labor relations or something know. like that? No idea. No, right. I don't know. I don't well, know what his All I'm saying are. is there's a very high probability that people are going to say, wow, this looks like some kind of quid pro quo, that the guy makes a sweetheart deal for somebody who turns out to be the friend of Trump. And then Trump 
makes him the secretary of labor. Well, also, look, so again, I was trying very hard, Jim, to avoid politics, but I'm I, not, this is not politics. No, no, this but is I a can, criminal case. I can say that evidence today shows that, that was gathered back then shows that some 15 years ago, then Donald Trump, not president, um, banned Jeffrey Epstein from his club at Mar-a-Lago because he felt like he was predatory toward young women. I mean, okay. that's been documented. So I don't know that they were friends. They were photographed together. Citizen Trump said favorable things about Epstein in a news article, profile of Epstein that came out in 02. The same article quoted many other people, including Bill Clinton, saying favorable things about Epstein. The point is that lots of people felt but, favorably to him before these allegations okay, came but out. but before you said that he was connected to presidents, and you, I know you mentioned Clinton and Trump. Were they both on his jets? Were they both on his islands? Were they both at his mansion? President Clinton flight logs show, although he's said something very different. President Clinton said something very different this week. But flight logs, so actual manifest evidence, shows that President Clinton was on those jets with Epstein 26 times around the world. There is a suggestion, though I've not seen that it is in a flight log, there are suggestions President Trump flew with Epstein on his jet once. President Trump very famously had his own jet. But let's go back to the key facts in the case from okay. from the from Alex Acosta and what makes this appalling on so many levels. They were negotiating in secret with Ken Starr and with Alan Dershowitz and the rest of the members of Epstein's defense team back in 2006, 2007. They did not tell any of the victims that they were negotiating. They did not tell any of the victims that they were contemplating a non-prosecution agreement, which I, I don't think I've ever even been a party to and is a very unusual document anyway to exist in the federal system. It exists. And here, what it said was, we, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Southern District of Florida, will not prosecute Epstein. He expects this is a global resolution of all of his crimes investigated by the FBI and local law enforcement. And we will not bring any charges in this district against him or anyone else who might have been a co-conspirator with him in return for his plea to a couple of solicitation of prostitution offenses in state court. Okay, this is outrageous. First of all, two things. Why on this earth would you possibly rule out going after co-conspirators? The whole point of making a deal with one person is because he's cooperating against other people. Why fail to prosecute someone? Obviously, there are crimes here. He pled guilty to crimes, even though they were misdemeanors. Why would you relieve anybody else before you knew what they did? I don't know. And they didn't even require his cooperation. And It's not like they did a non-prosecution agreement in return for his cooperation against these co-conspirators, which since he's the one sexually assaulting people, I would have objected to just as strongly right. as I'm objecting today. But it's even more outrageous because they didn't require him to do anything other than plead guilty in state court. And pay some restitution. Well, it's unclear to me. It was reported at the time as misdemeanors. Sometimes people call it felonies. It was soliciting a minor for prostitution. Uh, the sentence was 13 months, which is just outside a misdemeanor sentence, right. although in some so jurisdictions it still is. So it might have been a felony. Uh, but it's still absurd. It's an absurd result. And the in my most experience, if the jail term 
is more than a year. It has to be a felony. Yes. Did he serve 13 months? He was sentenced to 13 months, but he was given work release. So he spent nights in jail. Every morning, his chauffeur would come and pick him up and take him back to his mansion in West Palm Beach, where he'd spend the day doing whatever he wanted to do. And then his chauffeur would return him to jail that evening to spend the night. That's how he spent his 13 months. But if it's possible, Jim, even more outrageous. What the fuck? I know. Even more outrageous than that is the treatment of the victims. Not a single one of them were told that he was going to plead guilty in state court instead of federal court. But not a single one of them were told he was pleading guilty in state court at all so that they could be there and be heard. Right. I mean, shouldn't they have been able to give their their victim statements to the court before sentencing yes, or during and- sentencing? And also, isn't it a law? That the federal government has to tell the victims? It is a law. They are required to do so under the Victims' Rights Act. And in fact, the victims, after it was discovered that Epstein pled guilty and got this ridiculous sweetheart deal, some of the victims filed suit and have been in court ever since this happened, trying to get this non-prosecution agreement and the deal overturned. And that is one of the things that the Miami Herald article last fall has prompted is action in that civil matter. Mm. You've had a federal judge very recently opine and hold that it violated the Victims' Rights Act not to inform the victims. But here's the problem. Like so many things in federal law, there's no remedy. So even though federal prosecutors very clearly and shockingly violated the law here, and there are even emails back and forth between the lawyers and Alex Acosta and his assistants in that office and the defense attorneys specifically avoiding telling the victims about the state court plea. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and they did it anyway. But there's no remedy for the victims. There is no law that says you violated the victim's rights, and therefore the deal is tossed. Nothing. They get nothing. But if you violate the law, you have not broken a law? Not in any. It's not a criminal statute. Well, obviously, Francie, this is an outrage. Okay. I really want to get to the bottom of this. We can't get to the bottom of this today, but we will come back very soon. I am looking forward to the statement that's about to come out today from... Alex Acosta, he has a press conference scheduled on the day today that we're recording this, where I hear rumors, Jim, that he is not going to resign and is, in fact, going to defend himself and the conduct of his office. Well, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Obviously, we will be listening closely, and then we will come back and do a follow-up episode of Worst Case Scenario, because this is a worst case scenario. Till next time. Thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. 
Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org. the number 2 l.org. Ooh, yeah.